It's time now for Illinois Innovators, where we spotlight the trending topics in research, technology, and entrepreneurship surrounding the Granger Engineering community at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. As the world assesses how they can support projects in non-industrialized countries, a new study brought to light just how important cultural and environmental factors are when providing humanitarian engineering aid in these regions. The study led by Ann Perry Whitmer, a lecturer of agricultural and biological engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, published in the Journal of Engineering Design and Technology, takes an in-depth look at some of the perspectives that may determine the effectiveness of development organizations. She is here to give us insights from her experiences with creating organizations that provide engineering assistance to communities in Central America, the Caribbean, South America, and Africa, and as the past faculty advisor for Illinois' chapter of Engineers Without Border. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, first off, uh, before we get into the weeds of this, you weren't, uh, you didn't start out to be an engineer, right? Uh, talk talk uh, about your, your past life before uh, getting into engineering. My, my secret life, yeah. <laughs> um, engineering is actually, um, I think we could say it's my third career. Uh, my first career, uh, uh, I have degrees in journalism and art history, and I actually worked as a newspaper reporter and editor for about 10 years. Um, and in some ways, that's where all of these ideas came to me, I think, with engineering. Uh, but I spent a lot of time working in municipal government and, and particularly in science and environment at newspapers. Um, second career, I was a stay-at-home mom, where I also learned a whole lot <laughs> about how to work with people and how to work with the world. And I spent about 10 years um, with my children after my, my journalism career um, came to a close and started my um, schooling on engineering and came here at the University of Illinois to get my bachelor's degree in civil. And there began uh, this interest. I mean, we, we listed all the countries that you've had a, uh, a hand in, um, you know, leading teams and, and uh, d using uh, your skills in those organizations. Uh, talk us about, uh, tell us about some of those projects and, and, uh, and maybe a little more in detail. Yeah. I, I actually came to this whole uh, place that I'm at now very accidentally. Um, had not ever intended to work internationally, had not expected myself to become involved in academia. Uh, when I went back to school for engineering, I finished another bachelor's degree. I think I held the world record for the most diverse bachelor's degrees. Um, but started to work in uh, consulting engineering in Wisconsin. And I was up there for about 12 years working for municipalities in Wisconsin and Illinois, um, you know, Minnesota, Iowa, the, the upper Midwest, on drinking water facilities and drinking water design. And while I was doing that, I wasn't getting quite the satisfaction I was hoping for because I was, I was feeling very much like a commodity as a consultant. Um, people would, would pay to hire me to do some designs for them, but they didn't really want to pay for the extra thought in making sure I was doing the, the best design. Mm -hmm. They wanted the quick fix. And I think knowing that I was, I was functioning that way in my uh, working life, I wanted to find a little bit more satisfaction. So I was involved with the American Water Works Association, 
which is the, the primary industry organization for drinking water professionals. Um, and they had a, a, a charity called Water for People, and each, each state chapter of AWWA had a committee, and so I got involved with that. Um, was with Water for People for several years before, I, I, I don't quite know how this happens, but I think everybody else just takes one step back and you're left standing at the front of the line. And so I became the chair of this organization. And as I was the chair, I realized that a lot of the work we were doing was raising money for other people to do things, but we had all this engineering expertise. Mm-hmm. And we should be contributing ourselves some some knowledge and, and some, some uh, uh, skill-based um, um, support for a lot of these projects that were being done elsewhere. Well, that, that is a tough sell sometimes. Initially, it was a tough sell with our own organization because people wanted to work in other places but didn't have the, the time to do it, um, didn't want to take the vacation to do it. Uh, the other tough sell was the organization as a whole, Water for People, didn't really want engineers going out and dabbling with this because it could affect their quality assurance, essentially. Um, so I talked uh, them into letting me go along on a project that we were funding one year in Guatemala and travel to a place called Nueva Providencia, which was a former coffee plantation. Um, water for People had, uh, was in the process of installing a drinking water system. Most of the people who lived in this community were refugees from mudslides, because there had been recent mudslides, uh, where people had lost many members of their family and were left with nothing other than the clothes on their backs. Um, and so they came to this, this community, um, which had been abandoned uh, by the coffee plantation owner and purchased by a mission, and literally carried the wood for their homes up the mountain on the, uh, themselves and built their houses. Uh, and then Water for People was installing water. Um, and that experience really opened my eyes, I think, to not only the need that, that exists in the world and how comfortable we are with our own conditions, but also the attitudes that we unintentionally carry uh, when we're working on these projects. Uh, I looked around and saw so many people who uh, were working with me on, on these projects who really got a lot for themselves. Uh, by participating in this. And I didn't see anything wrong with that, but I felt it was important that people acknowledge that so that they they can prevent it from guiding all of their decision-making. So what did you learn from the people that you were providing the aid for um, that were important? That obviously is sort of the genesis for this study, right. is that th- there's this sensitivity that, that we need to have with other cultures and environment so that uh, they feel comfortable receiving uh, the assistance from people from the, from the Western countries. Yeah, I think that was the most kind of mind-blowing experience of the whole, of the whole thing, was, was meeting the people who lived in this community. Um, you know, we were talking with the poorest of the poor people living in Guatemala at the time. Um, and yet they had this, this insight and this perspective and also this, 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 what we now call innovative self-sufficiency, this capability of solving problems um, with, with very limited resources that, that we can't imagine having here. Um, one particular moment really struck me uh, in, in becoming aware that, that 
we really don't have a right to come in and, and tell people we're superior and they should listen to us, was this community was Ketchikal, which is a, a dialect uh, of, of Mayan tradition. And um, the women of the community didn't speak Spanish. They only spoke Ketchikal. And so to communicate with the women, I, I don't speak Spanish very well. Um, so to communicate with the women, I would need a Spanish translator, an interpreter. And then he would have to speak to somebody who could translate the Spanish into Ketchikal to speak to the women. And so it was, it was kind of a, a game of telephone whenever mm-hmm. I'd have these conversations. Well, I was talking with one woman who lived in a single-room house, um, and I'm using that term loosely, um, with, I forget, eight or ten children, husband and mother, in this, in this one room. And for the first time, she was going to have running water available to her in her life. And the question that we asked her was, how is this going to change your, your daily life? And I asked that, and it went from me into Spanish, into Ketchikal. And then the, the Ketchikal interpreter and this woman talked back and forth for quite some time. And I had to ask, why? What's, what's the problem? And by the time it came back to me in English, it was that there's, there's no conditional uh, term in Ketchikal. People don't have the language to say uh, how would their lives change. So they really can't um, think forward mm-hmm. uh, about um, enhancement. And when I started thinking about that, it, it, was, it was stunning to me to think that, that the entire perception of, of what our lives are like and what our thought processes are uh, is is very dependent on place and and people and um, me imposing this notion of oh you know now you're going to be able to work for a living and and earn money and put an extra room on your house was inconceivable and and, and, and irrelevant. So you talked about this experience um, in Central America. You've been to a lot of the other regions, um, and I'm sure they helped expand this understanding that you had. Um, and so just share a couple stories, if you can, yeah. of, of some of the, some of your other experiences, because uh, this, I mean, uh, started off with, with a very, very interesting one. Well, I, I've had a number of experiences, um, and, and each one has, has brought me forward and I think, you know, advanced the concept of contextual engineering. Uh, one of my favorite ones with technical understanding um, and, and, and appropriateness of technology comes from a partner that I had worked with in Senegal. Um, he had been a Peace Corps volunteer before he was working as a, a non-government organization, an NGO. And as a Peace Corps volunteer, he had identified a community that didn't have drinking water, and the women had to spend hours a day walking for water. And so his idea was to dig a, a well and to install a rope pump to make it easier to pull water up from that well for the women of the community. What was interesting about this was a few months after he built this, he went back and found that the pump had been deliberately broken. And when he started asking around what happened to that pump, he found out that it was the very women that it was intended to serve who broke that pump. Um, and it, it's, it's very interesting because the reason was because in Senegal, in this, this part of Senegal, in most of Senegal, it's Muslim and polygamous. And so the men of this village would have multiple wives. And the wives would live in compounds and would only be allowed to leave the compound for you know, the purpose of serving the family, which typically was getting water. 
And the rest of the time, they were only in the compound with their co-wives and their children. Well, there can be a lot of competition among co-wives, so they're not always friends. Mm-hmm. Um, your best friend may be in a completely different compound, and the only time you get to see your best friend is when you're walking for water. And so what these women did was they broke the well so that they would have to go back to walking for several hours a day so they could have that social contact that they really needed. Yeah, and you would have no way of un- understanding, knowing this, uh, but certainly looking backward, that totally makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. But the the predisposition of somebody trying to fix a situation for a society they don't understand is we know what you need, we know how to build it, we'll put it in place. So it kind of brings us to this study. Uh, is the study... Uh, how much of it is empirical data and how much of it is is an observation that you've had for years of experience uh, serving the the people in the the non-industrialized world? Yeah, this this is a great question for an engineer because (laughs) most of my engineering colleagues would say that this is is, uh, anecdotal. If you talk to social sciences uh, uh, researchers, they would say this is is a, a hardcore research ethnographic. Uh, by going and participating and observing and keeping detailed records. That's actually what this study is based off of. Um, Unintentionally, when I was doing this as a a volunteer, I kept journals of every trip I would take. And I would particularly make notes of what struck me as as missing in the decision-making, as not working, and as working very well. I, I, I kept these records just for my own understanding. And so when I started looking at this more um, rigorously as, a, as an academic, I was able to, to get permission from our institutional review board to uh, enter my old journals into um, research. And I took all of those journals along with experiences that I've had more recently um, and, and processed them through um, ethnographic uh, analysis software where you, I, you, you identify word by word Key key conditions and phrases, and then and then evaluate them to to cook them together essentially into a a, a formula of what works and doesn't. And I would think that um, as your experience grows, perhaps you might see some appreciation from the people that that you are helping, that you indeed understand. Um, Somewhat, maybe you can't empathize completely with what their experience is, but the fact that that is taken into consideration, I would think there would be some appreciation, perhaps, mm. uh, from, hey, uh, they're not just here just to do this for me. They, they certainly, they're here to, um, you know, to help them in other ways, and, and that, that they recognize that sensitivity that, that you have for them. So, yeah, I, let's see if I can answer this. <laughs> Um, one of the cornerstones of, of the process that we use in contextual engineering is recognizing all of the stakeholders' motivations and, and values and objectives. And I think it would be disingenuous of me to say that I don't have, as one of my motivations, uh, feeling like I'm making a difference, feeling like I'm, I'm doing something that's appreciated. That's human nature. Right. Um, I try not to let that guide me because I, I'm not... I, I don't want to let 
my need for approval drive all my decision right. making, if that makes sense. Right. But I recognize that's that's there. And so I, I just say that as preface to when I'm dealing with communities, um, one of the things that we've heard consistently, because we teach this in courses now and we take students to, to various places, um, one of the things we consistently hear from our partners, our client communities, is no one's ever asked us before what we think or no one's ever suggested they could learn from us. Um, and that's personally gratifying to me to hear that, um, knowing that we're doing something that, hasn't, that they haven't felt before. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I try to temper that because that's not the ultimate objective to have them say thanks. What are some of the things that uh, the study specifically, I mean, we've kind of talked in generality uh, yeah. that, that you can, that folks can take from this study um, going forward. Uh, what were some of the sort of the aha moments that we should take from the study? Yeah, um, I think, well, there were, there were a number of them. Um, and, and kind of hitting the highlights of the important ones with the technical thinking. Uh, I think one of the highlights that I found was that uh, engineers from the industrialized world working in non-industrialized communities tend to discount an understanding of technology. We, we pride ourselves in our what we refer to as advanced technology, uh, our developed technology, and view what we see in, in our, uh, the communities we're working with is, is undeveloped or not advanced. When in fact, it's, it's equally advanced, just in a different pathway. Um, what I found is that the capability in a lot of these societies where resources aren't, aren't the, simply aren't the same as what we have, the capability that these other societies have to function and to find innovative solutions uh, far surpasses our own. And that we need to, rather than bringing our own technology because we consider it superior, learn the technology that exists in a place. I can give you an example of okay, this. Okay, sure. And, and I'll just make a just an observation from what you've uh, talked about. I mean, it, it would make sense that they've had to overcome much more than us to try to figure out how to, to function. And so you have to be creative and, and, to be, and able uh, to do that in a lot ways that we don't because we just we turn on a faucet and it works and we don't think about exactly. how it works. And, and they exactly. have to. Exactly. Yeah, so, but that's my observation, and I'll let you give the example. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. But, and and the perfect example of that was a few years ago, uh, a group of students. Uh, there were about twenty of us uh, working in a community in Honduras. Uh, we were traveling there to to learn from the community and and to evaluate the conditions so that we could do a design of a water system. Um, so we're we're all staying in a single house. Uh, sleeping on the floors, uh, because we stay in the community so we can learn the community rhythms and get to know people. Um, and we had a latrine for all of us. Uh, one night, one of our students came in and said, the latrine is plugged. And it, this was a, uh, there was a, a ceramic toilet in there, but you flushed it by pouring a bucket of water into it. And the latrine was, was stopped up. So you've got 20 engineers and engineering students in a house. You'd think this would be easily solvable. Mm -hmm. We could not get it un unstopped with like a clothes hanger or a sticker. We, we couldn't figure that out. And I'm thinking at night, I'm going to have to get in my pickup truck that I had rented for emergencies, drive to the nearest city 60 kilometers away, um, 
find an open Walmart <laughs> and buy a toilet plunger. Um, I, I sent one of our, our fluent Spanish speakers to the next house to ask if they had a plunger. And they went over. A couple minutes later, the, the, the gentleman of the house comes down and takes a look at the, the latrine and uh, said, no, we don't have toilet plungers. But he walks behind our house, and we hear him hacking down a sapling. And we're all going, what in the heck? He comes back out with a, a small spear and looks around the ground and sees a, a discarded grain bag flapping in, in some barbed wire. Uh, around the edge of the property, grabs that and wraps it around the the, the the stake, kind of smushes it a couple of different ways and walks into the bathroom and plunges the toilet cleanly with like three three plunges. And we're all standing there incredibly humbled by the fact that all we were thinking about is where am I going to buy a toilet plunger? Mm -hmm. And he's saying all you need is a, a, a tree and a piece of discarded bag to solve a problem. And it, it showed me right there that the ability to problem solve, which is what engineering is all about, is probably stronger with societies that have to solve problems every day than it is with us. Well, and uh, kind of as, as you think about Engineers Without Borders, which you've had a lot of experience with, um, and um, I've written and talked to, to folks that have been on those, these are multi-step, um, I mean, you go back to the same place to, to try to and continue a project. Sure. So you know, as you try to identify where you want to go and what the problem is, what are, what are some of the things that should be the, the first steps before you actually go in and, and uh, start solving the problem? Yeah. We actually we have a process now for this in contextual engineering, uh, and it's, it's actually being used by Engineers Without Borders USA. Uh, we created a tool for being able to assess communities' influences, non-technical influences that's, that's provided to new projects through EWB USA. But the first step that, that we try to follow is um, understanding global conditions that could affect the relationship we have with a community. So, for example, if I'm working in um, Sierra Leone, knowing that that country had been under British rule for a very long time and had been colonized, and essentially the identity of the people of Sierra Leone has, has been significantly changed. I have to be aware of that and that impact. Um, developing an understanding of, of uh, global relationships is number one. Number two is, is spending some time with the place. And as engineers, we tend to focus on the physical conditions of place elevations, availability of water, for example, um, span across a river if we're building a bridge. We worry about those physical conditions, but we also encourage our practitioners to understand people and to talk to people and uh, not just the leaders of the community, but to spend time with people and, and get to know them as people, not as beneficiaries. And I would be doing air quotes if we were on video right now. Mm, sure. Um, understanding those, those conditions of power dynamics and economic need and cultural identity and uh, desire to learn, those are all very important things to, to know before you, you proceed to identifying a technical solution. 
The third thing we do is we identify all the people associated with a project. So, for example, with an Engineers Without Borders project, there are the student practitioners, uh, there are the professional practitioners who mentor them, there's the community itself, there's typically a non-government organization that acts as a liaison, uh, there's the Engineers Without Borders headquarters that oversees the process. Understanding that all of these people are stakeholders in a process and may have different definitions of what a positive outcome is, is important. And then taking all of that and bringing it back into the technical decision making and the design process. That's how we, that's how we get to an end process that fits the community. Well, and it, it is important to have the contact in the community that um, you can maybe talk openly uh, and they can give you feedback of what the people in that community are thinking and how they're reacting and what maybe give some insight on specifically what they see their needs are. Absolutely. And to get that, you have to build trust. And you can't build trust by coming in for a couple of days and telling people what they need. Um, it really requires humility. It requires curiosity. And it requires an, an appreciation of the fact that these are these are intelligent people who may not have the same level of education I have just by, by uh, dint of the fact that they were born in a different place. Um, respecting, respecting them as, as individuals uh, really opens the door to learn about them and, and get that, that information that, that helps to make sure you're addressing their needs. Well, and I would just think from a, an industrialized perspective, the goal could be we want to take the non-industrialized world and making, make them industrialized. Um, that may not be what um, the people see is, is that's what, what they want. I mean, um, just talk about that dynamic because I think as from the outside, that seems like a very noble goal, but uh, there's, it's very complicated, I'm sure. You're absolutely correct. And that's, that's when I talked about the first thing that we identify as the global conditions, that falls right into the global conditions. Recognizing that, that the notion of development comes out of post-World War II, um, I, I mean, it existed before then, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, um, regimented in the way it is now. The, the development was created as it exists now to raise other, other people, other countries to a level of, of uh, being able to participate in world markets that a lot, of, a lot of the objectives of a lot of the organizations, the large organizations that, pr that do these projects on a, on a grand scale, is to give societies the capability of having enough money to purchase products on the world market. Not everybody wants to purchase products on right. the world market. And, and it's, a, it's a hard realization. And it's a dangerous realization, too, if you don't, if you don't weigh it in all directions. Because just as it's easy to say these are, these are poor, helpless people who need us to, to rescue them, there's an equal risk of saying these are, these are simple, happy people who have everything they want and we should, we should leave them alone. Both of those are wrong. There's something in the middle of them that, that requires decision-making based on place, on context. And that takes away that whole notion of there's a solution out there for the world, uh, a scalable solution. Because at the end of, of the study that, that I published on recently, the conclusion is that there is no scalability. There is no solution that will work universally, that we have to work on the context of each individual client uh, 
to address the conditions and needs that, that they want addressed. And it may not be developing them as we, we, global we, want them to develop. It may be developing them down the path that they want to develop. Have you thought about writing a book? I have. I have. <laughs> Unfortunately, that requires time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine we've just touched on a few of the stories, and maybe we'll, we'll end with letting you tell your next favorite story um, of all the work that you've done. Uh, but uh, I would think that the, the world would benefit from uh, learning about the experiences that you've had over the, over the years. I've, I've been very fortunate to have these experiences, I have to say. Um, they're not always they're not always comfortable experiences. I've I've had some. In, in retrospect, they're very funny. At the time, they weren't. Um, but I've had some experiences that have have made me much more aware of of uh, what I am going out into the world. And I guess the story I would end with was uh, when I was working with our engineers without borders in Nigeria. Uh, the first time I traveled there, I had never been to Africa. Uh, I had never been to the the uh, sub-Saharan. Um, world at all. And uh, Engineers Without Borders asked if I could come help them with a, a problematic uh, water system that they had been working on for some time. And that was actually what brought me back to the University of Illinois uh, academically. So I arrive in um, Lagos, which is a massive city. And everybody I had talked to before going there said, you're a white woman going to Lagos, be very, very careful. They kidnap whites because they assume they're with the petroleum industry. And so I was like, somebody has to meet me at the airport. Somebody has to get me out of town. This was, this was when I was very new to this process. Um, so I had a, an escort who got me from the international airport to the local airport. I flew out to um, uh, Enugu State, which was near the community we were working with. And I was met by... Uh, he's actually a professor who had come here as a visiting professor. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, but I met him. He picked me up at the airport. And he's, he's a unique person in that he's fighting the uh, history in Nigeria of corruption uh, one person at a time. He's just taking it on himself. And one of the, the biggest evidences of corruption is the, the checkpoints throughout the, uh, the Nigerian countryside where police chiefs will have their policemen set up a checkpoint specifically to stop cars and accept bribes. And so they uh, inspect cars, look for um, uh, any kind of violation of, of strange requirements, like every car has to have a, a fire extinguisher in it. Um, and And... If you can't produce your fire extinguisher, you pay the bribe. The police officer pays the chief portion of that bribe. That's, it's, it's institutionalized. So not knowing this, I'm, I'm riding with, with my friend um, in a car out to the village, and we hit a checkpoint. And the officer says something to, to uh, Kaj, and he says something back to the officer and then gets very angry and guns the, the motor and pulls away. And I'm saying to him, so what was that about? He goes, oh, it's nothing. It's just ignorance. And I'm like, okay. He goes, we're going to have problems. <laughs> so a couple miles down the road, the police officer goes whizzing by us on a motorcycle. And by the time we hit the next town, there's a much larger roadblock thrown up by the military. Um, at this point, the military pulls our car over. And Kajitan says, just stay here. And he gets out of the car, and he and the military officers are screaming and bumping chests at each other. And I'm just watching this, and I, 
I, even though I hadn't traveled in this part of the world, I traveled enough to know, just sit back, take a deep breath, everything's going to be okay. So I'm sitting there, and I hear out of the, the window next to me, I hear somebody going, psst. And I look over, and there's this, an officer leaning in the window with his automatic weapon, not pointed at me, but <laughs> a little too uncomfortably near my face. And he says, do you feel safe? And I didn't know how to answer that. Because <laughs> honestly, having an officer with a, a machine gun near my ear didn't really make me feel safe. But I said, y yeah. And he goes, do you feel safe with this man? And I'm like, of course, this is my friend. And then he yells over to the other officer. They back off and we pull away. Apparently, the um, police officer had said to my friend, why do you have a white woman in the car? Are you kidnapping her? And my friend said, that's ignorant, and pulled away. Um, it was it was a very enlightening experience about uh, how to handle things, how people get along. In Nigeria, people are very comfortable yelling at each other. Uh, that's how they express themselves. So the perspective really makes a difference. It's all about the perspective. I know I said that be kind of last question, but I do, do want to get your perspective as a faculty advisor, the next generation, mm -hmm. their perspective, uh, on helping, you know, what, what, as you take students over, uh, what, what's the, your impression of the, of the students of this generation that are in college and, and maybe beyond, uh, just a little bit beyond, of, of, how, of how their perspective might be different than our generation, for instance? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be honest, I am very, very hopeful because of the generation I see coming into college right now. I've got a, a vibrant research group that's as many undergraduates as graduate students, and I have not recruited them. The undergraduates have come to me saying, this makes sense. Engineers Without Borders has become much more open to recognizing that engineering isn't just about formulas. It's staggering to me how many engineering students I see in the various courses I teach, and I don't just teach contextual engineering. Um, many, many of the students say, I, I want to be an engineer, but I want to make sure I'm thinking about who I'm engineering for. And I'd have to say, I, don't, I didn't hear that a lot with my generation of engineering uh, uh, practitioners. It was, I can remember when I was an, an undergrad and people were talking about how much money they were going to earn. I hear that so much less now, and I really do believe that, that there's a lot of hope for the future. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, I, hope is always a good thing. Uh, and I, I thank you for taking the, the half hour or so to, to talk with us about uh, your paper and your experiences. I think uh, it's, it's valuable and it will be valuable to our listeners. And we invite you to come back sometime. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Ann Perry Whitmer has been our guest. I'm Mike Kuhn. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illinois Innovators. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, or become involved in our community by using the hashtag Illinois Innovators.